score and seven minutes ago, we, your forefathers, were brought forth upon a most excellent adventure, conceived by our new friends, Bill and Tim. These two great gentlemen are dedicated to a proposition which was true in my time, just as it's true today. Be excellent to each other. And... Party on, dudes! Welcome to Now Playing's most excellent Bill and Ted retrospective series. Bill, what? Strange things are afoot at the Circle K. With our most triumphant of podcast hosts, Jacob. Listen to this dude. He knows what he's talking about. Arnie. He's totally a robot. And Stuart. You know, you got a bad rap, but you're actually an okay dude. This podcast will contain heavy plot spoilers and heinous language. Dude, I got a very bad feeling about this. It'll be fine, Ted. Listener discretion is most definitely advised. Let's rock! Today we're discussing Bill and Ted's Excellent Adventure. Starring Keanu Reeves, Alex Winter, and George Carlin, directed by Stephen Herrick. I'm Arnie G. Carvalho, Esquire. (laughs) When did that happen? I'm Stuart. And this is the Duke of Jacob. And we are... Now now Playing! (laughs) So we are on a most excellent adventure ourselves, doing the Bill and Ted trilogy, and leading up to our first theatrical review since Deep Blue Sea 3. Well, no, that's not theatrical. Our theatrical releases this year, The Grudge, (laughs) which I barely remember coming out, Bad Boys for Life, Birds of Prey, and Sonic the Hedgehog. What a year 2020 is. Mm. Mm -mm. (laughs) Yeah, that was the last time I went to theaters for downplaying. This is in theaters, this new movie? Yeah, it's opening in theaters and video on demand same day. Oh, okay. I was just assuming I was streaming this. You might be. <laughs> I will be. <laughs> In our town, you probably are. Yeah, I don't know how many people will have the opportunity to get to a theater, but it's good to know that they can see a new movie if they should make it. So what is your guys' history with Bill and Ted? Jacob, I know you put Bogus Journey in the book saying it's underrated. Yeah, you think I might be a little bit of a fan? Look, I'm a big fan of Bill and Ted, and there are a handful of, like, Almost trilogies that I've always wanted completed, like Del Toro's Hellboy. I wish that got a proper part three. Crank, I wish that got a third part. And like Bill and Ted, this is one I always wanted a third part to, just because I enjoy these characters so much. I mean, I saw this when it came out in theaters. I saw Bogus Journey, Weekend of Release. Like, these are movies. I I barely had to watch them for these reviews. Yeah, I rented the first movie. Actually, I had the first movie rented for me because my mom thought I was watching too many horror movies. And she's like, here, this will make you laugh. And I hated it. And never watched another thing with Bill and Ted. <laughs> you didn't 
review Bogus Journey for the book? No, you were wise. You picked somebody else. <laughs> Marjorie, there's only one other person I could invent. I saw Bill and Ted's Excellent Adventure in theaters against my will. I had a friend and we'd go to a lot of movies together. And he was adamant that this is the one we were going to see. And I'm like, I really don't want to see these idiots just going, dude, for two hours. Maybe because I'm from the L.A. area, like, I, as a kid, full-on surfer talk. Like, radical, dude, like, all of that stuff. Like, that's just how we talked out here. It's real? That's where I start. I'm like, no one ever existed like this. These aren't real people. Well, you know, all the, like, excellent and bogus and non, 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 hate, like, no, not like that. But, like, that, that surfer vibe, like, yeah, definitely we were like that out here. I lived in Florida, and there was nothing like that there. So, still surfers, no lingo. Yeah, it feels highly exaggerated. Oh, it is, yeah. But I walked out enjoying myself enough and thinking, yeah, that wasn't bad. My friend was over the moon for it. I didn't like it enough to go see Bogus Journey in theaters, but when I found out Faith No More's Jim Martin was in it, I rented it its first week. Oh, Primus is in that one? I, we'll, we'll wait till next week to get there, but yeah. Much better music in that, even though that second one's got winger. But yeah, overall, better music. Why do people like The Fool? It's a question that always eludes me. I mean, I went back to Greek myth. I'm like, I always hated Pan, the <laughs> drunk guy that was falling off, always ruining things for the other gods. Shakespeare and Falstaff. John Belushi starting a food fight in Animal House, Sean Penn, Polly Shore, Stifler, Harold and Kumar, all the way today's mugging YouTubers like Logan Paul. Like, Oh, don't put Logan Paul with Bill and Ted. Get out. They're the same thing. They're all the same thing. And I get why you'd use them sparingly. It's funny to have somebody come in and change the color of a room with a dumb joke. But to focus on that and to give them the floor to make it all about that, I just, I've never wanted to see The Fool in an entire movie. I don't know if I could go on and on about Pan. Like, I've been a long time since I've gone that far back in my <laughs> literature. I will say, though, like, when it comes to Bill and Ted, there is something pure about them. And maybe because, you know, the studios wanted these to be kid-friendly movies, so they're not drinking and smoking pot. They're acting like that. Like, I knew guys like this in junior high and high school, and it's because they smoked a lot of pot. And they would surf all the time. And, like, they were stupid because they'd skip school to hit the waves. But there's something like pure about them and innocent like is Wayne and Garth are they similar to Bill and Ted very I mean I think they're actionable honestly I mean I do think <laughs> you could probably sue Mike Myers and win with how much of the moves the shtick the heavy metal fool I'll say this pioneered the heavy metal fool and yeah Wayne's World and Beavis and Butthead took it and ran with it but I like those more I think those are sharper comedies is it because they could be, again, I don't want to say Beavis and Butthead are more mature and adult, but be, they could be edgier because it was MTV. Yeah. And again, these are really here for children's entertainment. And and again, that I kind of associate that innocence with them and just makes them pure. When Beavis and Butthead, I don't associate that. Garth, maybe. Definitely not Wayne. That dude's horny. He's always trying to get late. I guess Garth is too. He's got. He's always swinging. I'll just stick with the first Wayne's World movie. I never even saw the SNL stuff. I've never seen the sequel. I liked the first movie enough, not because they were banging their heads to Bohemian Rhapsody. I thought it was one of the first movies to capture Gen X 
referencing humor. Like Simpsons at the same time started and like there was a new sensibility about what was funny and mining the 70s and the early 80s for laughs. And Wayne's World was on the cusp of that. Yeah, we could talk about it more when we get to Bogus Journey, but I definitely feel like this is the end of the 80s. Like, this is glam metal, hair metal. Mm -hmm. This is not grunge. This is Power Tool. I don't even know who Power Tool is. Oh, Power Tool. We're going to talk about Power Tool. I know about Power Tool. (laughs) Okay, you got all their albums. Okay. You've seen them live, I'm sure. And Yeah, okay. This franchise has the same writers, the creators of Bill and Ted writing all three films. And Ed Solomon, Chris Matheson, I guess they were just writing buddies or college buddies or something. But they came up with these characters and they didn't do like improv or skits with them. But they would just do this talk back and forth to each other, just just having fun developing it. And it kind of just became a skit. And they were writing a film that was just going to be a bunch of skits, and Bill and Ted were going to be a skit in that film. And it's thanks to, we talked about this novelist before, Chris Matheson. I don't know if that name sounds familiar. No. But his dad, Richard Matheson, wrote I Am Legend. We reviewed all no. the various adaptations of that. Okay, so so the child of, of a great science fiction writer wrote this. Okay, I can believe that. And it was Richard Matheson's idea. He told his son, hey, why don't you just make the whole movie about Bill and Ted? Wow, Richard Matheson has an inner surfer dude. Yeah, so we have him to think. Yeah, yeah. Okay, I I wouldn't have guessed that. Well, he knows a good story and a good character when he sees it. I mean, he's an accomplished writer, and his son was not at this point. Neither was Ed Solomon, but he's gone on to write a lot of movies I've seen. Some of these films are so big, they probably have six or seven writers, and who knows where he came in, but like, yeah, Now You See Me, and Men in Black, that original one, like, he's got a lot of big credits. Super Mario Brothers, I know you guys love that. Yeah, that was shortly after this one, and I don't blame him for it. I think he was still trying to find his sea legs as a hired gun. And I don't know with Chris Matheson, maybe he lives off his dad's money. Maybe Bill and Ted paid a lot, (laughs) made him rich. Like the only thing I recognized him was like a goofy movie. I've never seen it, but like, I know what that is. (laughs) Wait, the animated movie about Goofy? He wrote that? Yeah, and his son. Yes. (laughs) Yeah. So not just a goofy movie, but the a goofy movie. (laughs) The definitive, the goofiest of movies. So, okay. All right. I guess he has that to claim about. So uh, these are what, a couple of 20 year olds that are trying to break into the industry yeah and southern california roots i'm guessing and growing up the dad is big on sci-fi and of course the 80s is big on sci-fi we have back to the future the star trek crew goes back in time with terminator yeah i mean peggy sue and but what's shocking is they wrote this in 84 before kirk and them went to the 80s and before back to the future they were writing this. Yeah, but I got tweaked. It didn't come out fully emerged and formed. I definitely feel like this movie was chasing the tail of Back to the Future for sure. Look, I don't want to be mean to Alex Winter. The dude's a director. He's actually like the idiot box freaked. He's done things that I like. But he's known for Lost Boys besides this. Mostly known for this. But Keanu Reeves, where was he? Was he anything? Like, I didn't know what a Keanu Reeves was when I saw this as a kid. Keanu Reeves has never been anything to me. That's another problem I had with why I didn't want to see this. Like, I hate him. I oh, He ruined everything. You would, he'd show up in 18th century France? You know he's one of the only good things left in this world. He has remained pure. Like, he's one of the few things that gives me hope still. Then go watch Dangerous Liaisons or Dracula and just see him gut those movies. Oh, no, I know. I don't want to see him doing any accents or anything like that. Shakespeare, cyberpunk, he failed 
Tails Head at all. You want to see his best role ever? Yeah, Point Break. Go see Always Be My Maybe. That is hysterical. He is great in that. And didn't you say he was good in Parenthood, Stuart? I could have sworn you liked him in Parenthood. He only works as this, is what I'm saying. But he ruined every. He tried to stretch so many times. I'm going to be a rock star, cyberpunk, gay street hustler, Buddha. Give me a break. <laughs> I will say, and I think I said this when we reviewed The Matrix, I did not go see that movie originally because I just saw Keanu Reeves going, whoa. Like Ted Theodore Logan, I'm like, nope, I'm out. I don't want to see him doing that. Yeah, he's a huge turnoff for me. And yeah, he had done this nine different times. Bill and Ted was probably the most successfully focused on him being this slacker character. But yeah, Parenthood, my whole point for all of this is, in moderation, as a supporting character in the background of a very large cast of nuanced characters, yeah, he added something to Parenthood. But no, I did not want to see him do that for an entire movie in the spotlight. I really like Keanu these days, but I'll admit, sometimes he is terribly miscast. And yes, Much Ado About Nothing, it's a Shakespeare movie, so a lot of people don't realize that it's an intentional comedy. But if you see Keanu in it, he's the funniest thing as unintentional comedy. I saw it in a Shakespeare class, and we were just laughing so hard every time he spoke. But come on, I mean... Point Break is a great movie. Oh, yeah. He's not good in that movie. Speed. No, he's not good in Speed. Yes, he, he is. He's not good in any movie from the 80s or 90s until maybe The Matrix. And again, was he good or did they just build a movie around his abilities? No, Point Break, he's great. Speed, he is very, very good. I think he's amazing in my own private Idaho. Yes, that was River's movie. He's terrible in that movie. He ruined that movie. River Phoenix mops the floor with him in that movie. And then, of course, The Devil's Advocate. I think he was great in that. <laughs> no, <sighs> no one's great in that. I literally can't cite a performance where he's not playing a slacker where he is right for the role. He was good in A Scanner Darkly. I mean, you're really going decades into his career by this point. I mean, I'm talking about the 80s and the 90s, the heyday of this. He is toxic. Like, you do not want to see a Keanu Reeves movie. You do. Point break. Period. Exclamation point. That was a modest hit. I don't remember you ever being that excited about it. Oh, yeah. I always liked it. I always thought he was great in it. I think he and Patrick Swayze had some great bromance chemistry and Gary Busey was funny in it. I I always liked that movie. Okay. I had no idea. I stand by it. He wanted to stretch. I appreciate the fact that he wanted to be seen more than being Ted, but he isn't anything more than Ted. And the best movies accept that he is Ted. Now, I'll admit he's not so great in Bram Stoker's Dracula. Maybe someday we'll get to talk about it, but there are some problems. It is weird that he has gotten so many chances after, like, so many awful films. Like, look, now he's, like, a legit action star with the John Wick franchise. Like, I haven't seen those movies for that reason. I will not see him. I, I guess he's not a surfer dude. You're saying surfer dude in the background, he's going to be all right, like in Parenthood. That is your gauge for a good Keanu Reeves. Pretty much. With, you know, a few exceptions, like Arnie mentioned, Scanner Darkly, he ends up pulling it out of his hat. But for the most part, no, it's he's not a draw. I, I'm just wanting to stress that. Keanu Reeves in the cast list is something to be worried about, like Whoopi Goldberg. <laughs> I've counted Keanu out. So many times in his career, 
That's what I'm saying. He still has a career after so many bombs. Yeah, like Johnny Mnemonic. I'm like, oh, he's Ooh. done. We could spend hours talking about all of his stinkers. <laughs> all of them. And then he does the Matrix and he's back. And I'm like, okay, he's going to be something again. And then in the late aughts, he just kind of disappears, does 47 Ronin. I'm like, okay, this guy's gone. Awful, awful. And then he comes back as John Wick and becomes like... Literally my favorite action star right now. That is incredible. And then I think, didn't we all like him as Duke Kaboom last year? I mean, are you really going to hold on to Toy Story 4 as a reason why we need to keep Keanu in our lives? I mean, that is, (laughs) you get my point. I don't need to go on and on about this. Keanu Reeves was a punchline throughout his early stardom. Everyone knew he was a pretty boy that did not have range. Yeah, and even I, I always went back to, oh, Ted Logan? That's who you're going to get in your Shakespeare movie? Like, this was always my reference point. Even though I loved Point Break when that came out and and watched that a ton, like, it was always Ted Logan. Like, that was the reference point for Keanu Reeves for me. It probably still is. That's still my comparison. How could it not be? And maybe I need to go back to it, but I remember my own private Idaho. He was acclaimed for it, and I thought he was good in. He was not. River Phoenix was acclaimed for it. You are remembering River Phoenix, the really talented actor that we lost. Not the one that kept making stinkers like Chain Reaction. You know, River Phoenix was almost Bill or Ted. There were a ton of people who auditioned for this. Oh, yeah. They said it was a very grueling audition process. Sean Penn was actually auditioning to bring Spicoli back, as I take it. I mean, these guys are just Spicoli the next generation, right? Obviously, that was the thinking was like, we want to get that character his own movie, which is, again, always a mistake. You never want to give that supporting funny character their whole. You never want the spinoff is what you're saying. (laughs) No, no, you never give him the whole show. You don't want Laverne and Shirley just give you happy days. Actually, Laverne and Shirley was really good, but could you imagine the Squiggy show? Yes, there we go. Exactly. Well, we got Joni Loves Chachi, too. I mean, we don't have to imagine. (laughs) Anyway, am I alone? Just help me feel this out. Am I the only Keanu hater here? You guys are fans. I wouldn't say I'm a hater. I wouldn't say I'm a fan. I have a lot of respect for him now just because, again, he's someone that has stayed away from controversy. He seems like a legitimately good person. I'm not going to go see something just because his name's on it, though. Okay, fair enough. I'm not rating him as a person, just for the record. Like, I don't know who he is as a person. Oh, no, no. Like, in our family, he is known as the meme guy because he he became a meme last year because he just told someone they were wonderful and that blew up. And and so, like, even in our house, like, our girls see him. They're like, oh, it's the meme guy. And I can't say I'm a diehard fan of Keanu because I also won't see a movie just because he's in it. But I these days am happy to see he's in something. And if it's something I'd already be interested in, I become more interested and Yes, I realize he has had some of the lowest career lows that I am marveling that he has continued to work after. Who's his agent? Everybody should hire them. But I think the guy can really do good, and he's far more than, whoa, which I never gave him credit for, even through the early aughts, I thought, even The Matrix. I mean, he just, every movie, whoa. And I counted him out, and I now think I was wrong. Do you think that if you went back and saw his work in the 80s and 90s, you would evaluate a very good performer? Sometimes, yes. Okay. Can't go with you on that. But if he's going to do this, this seems to be in his wheelhouse. 
Did he even have a wheelhouse when they were filming this, though? I mean, was he anyone? Yeah, he'd done a lot of teen movies, like River's Edge and Permanent Record. and Yeah, The Prince of Pennsylvania, The Night Before. Yeah, he had done this five or six times. I don't know. I'm just These are movies I've never heard of. I'm just reading his IMDb. Oh, no, I saw them all. I rented them all, I should say. Well, those were all filmed after this, though, because this movie was done by... Dino De Laurentiis. I saw that in the opening credits. Dino went bankrupt, and this thing sat on a shelf for two years. Yeah, River's Edge came out in 86. Okay, so that would have been around the time this was filmed. Yeah, and Dino, I think, worked on that film as well. And so he was just... Dino saw him as the next James Dean. That was the thinking. Like, this is my big heartthrob star. Well, like Jacob said, I think a lot of people tried out. I don't think Dino gave this guy a golden ticket. Do we know why they landed the role? With all the auditions, they clicked. And the writers said that they thought these guys were absolutely perfect when they just saw them doing the dialogue. So it's really Rufus who's more interesting in casting. Yeah, I can't wait to figure out how George Carlin was in this. I had never heard of George Carlin when I saw this movie. You've never heard of him? Oh, I remember digging through my grandpa's tapes. I was probably like seven years old. I found his George Carlin comedy tapes, and I fell in love with those seven words you can't say on television. Like, way too young to be listening to that, but I love George Carlin just because I listened to his comedy tapes. I just remember him being a big deal on the posters, and I was seeing entertainment shows, and they're like, George Carlin! And I'm like, who is this guy? I've since then, of course, learned and I've listened to every stand-up routine that's available on Amazon Music, but... uh, A genius, yeah, yeah. Comic genius. Yeah, he's really, really funny, but he's only as good as the movie he's in as far as being an actor. (laughs) Why did they pick him? You don't know the other people they were thinking for this role? No, was Gallagher, was it all (laughs) stand-ups? No, it was written to be someone just a little older than Bill and Ted... And they were really gunning for Charlie Sheen. Oh, that, yeah, that would put a different mark on this film. Can you imagine this movie with Rufus as Charlie Sheen? I mean, I I could see why they go with that. They want someone that could pull off that Bill and Ted vibe. I could understand the reasoning. Yeah, uh, he would be Bill and Ted in some future world makes sense. And they did think older. They also really wanted Sean Connery. Ooh. Okay. (laughs) But he didn't understand the script, right? He never understands those scripts. They couldn't afford him. Ringo Starr? Roger Daltrey? (laughs) They could afford Ringo, couldn't they? Caveman. Have you ever seen that one? Oh, Oh, that's right. It's awful. At least he doesn't talk in it. God only knows how he'd act if he talks. I haven't seen A Hard Day's Night, so maybe he's good. No. (laughs) But I hate the Beatles, too, so I may be biased. They were halfway through shooting. They were still trying to find... The person to play Rufus. I, I am shocked that the director of Critters was this choosy over Rufus. Well, he didn't have complete say. He didn't have complete control of casting. Producer Scott Krupf, I think I'm saying that right, and the writers, Matheson and Solomon, were very involved in all the casting decisions, and the director was pretty much a hired gun. They're like, we like what you did with Critters. You worked cheap. You made it funny. So you can come do this. But he did not get to cast, I think, any of the roles. But this group had worked on Outrageous Fortune, just finished that, and that had George Carlin. And he was like, what about George Carlin? And everybody was like... Sure, we've tried everybody else. 
but they all thought he may have saved this movie. With the wrong Rufus, everybody thought this movie was destined to fail. But again, he carried no cachet to me. Neither did Keanu Reeves or Alex Winter. I had seen The Lost Boys by this point, but Alex Winter is like the least important of all the vampires, isn't he? Yeah. Yeah, he's a character actor. I mean, he just doesn't have the face for a leading man. And I think he found his voice as a director, right? Yeah. What is up with all his documentaries? I haven't seen them, like about Bitcoin and the Panama Papers. I don't know what his politics or anything, but he's like doing very heady things for these documentaries that I've seen him listed as directing. He's also helping YouTubers make movies. Smosh, the movie is his. I have no idea what that is in any way. Don't ever look. Don't even Google what I said. I mean, he had a short-lived TV show, The Idiot Box, on MTV. Sounds like a job that came directly out of doing Bill and Ted. Oh, it did. I think, yeah, everything shortly after this film is due to this film. Like, yeah, Freaked, Idiot Box, whatever success he may have had as an actor, I don't think anyone's hiring him for a Bitcoin documentary because of Bill and Ted, but I think shortly after this film, that, that was his cachet. I literally have never seen him since Bill and Ted's Bogus Journey. If he's acted, I haven't seen it. If he's directed, I haven't seen it. He did some Red Hot Chili Peppers videos you've seen. But again, behind the camera is kind of where he belongs, where he makes sense. This was only a modest hit, right? Like this made $40 million on a $6 million budget. But I think it was home video where it really became the phenomenon, right? Oh, it's got to be anything that spins off with a cartoon, a live action TV show, comics. There was so much stuff that spun out of this. Yeah, it had to be Reynolds that made it big if it wasn't that huge of a hit in theaters. It wasn't huge in theaters, but it was huge for Orion who actually put it out. It was, I believe, if I'm remembering right it was their top grossing film of 1989 yeah well they went bankrupt (laughs) two years later so you know robocop (laughs) three money wasn't keeping them alive but let's find out how much sway they hold in 2020 arnie why don't you give us the plot alex winter is bill s preston esquire and keanu reeves is ted theodore logan and together these two best friends dream of their band wild stallions blowing up but neither of them know how to play the guitar so they just spend their time dreaming and making bad videos. And even that pastime is in danger when Bill and Ted find out they're going to fail history class. Ted's father, a police officer, is prepared to send Ted to military school if and when he flunks out. The only way for them to pass the course is if they get an A-plus on their oral history presentation the next day. To help them with this comes Rufus, a man from the future, played by George Carlin. In the future, Wild Stallion's music is the basis for all civilization, so Rufus wants to be sure the two boys aren't separated. He gives them a telephone booth time machine so they can go into the past and learn history for their presentation. They travel through time and end up bringing to the present such historical figures as Socrates, Beethoven, Abraham Lincoln, Genghis Khan, Joan of Arc, and others, including Napoleon, who's a dick and causes the boys some trouble. When Bill and Ted take their troop to the mall, all the historical figures are arrested for various disorderly conducts. Bill and Ted break them out of prison using Ted's dad's keys to the cell, and they make it just in time for their oral presentation, which, with the aid of the historical figures, they get the A-plus needed to pass the course. And after, Rufus returns to congratulate them, And he brought Bill and Ted two medieval princesses they met on their journey. The princesses are also destined to be in the band, so they all jam, terribly, as credits roll. 
And as the film starts, I got to ask, this golden rod is emerging from a hole. (laughs) There's no other way to put it. And at certain shots, I'm like, okay, there's imperfections on whatever this gold thing is coming out. There's scratches. So it looks CGI, though. Not all of it, because there's no way they had filters to add imperfections like they could today to give things texture. But is this an early CGI film? Like when they're traveling through the circuits of time and and this opening scene, or is this some kind of just like weird animation? No, this was an early CGI film. The shots of the circuit of time and these opening shots, rudimentary CGI that would a couple of years later empower the lawnmower man. (laughs) Yeah, it looks lawnmower man. I mean, it does. uh, I mean, the gold, the angular, I was definitely thinking you're just a couple steps behind the lawnmower man. Which is kind of charming. I mean, no points taken off for a movie in the late 80s having crude CGI. That's part of the charm. Yeah. Yeah, I agree. I'm not dinging it at all. I'm merely dating it. Okay, I'll bite. You guys have made George Carlin's Rufus really important. He is the narrator. He kind of sets up everything. Why is this got to be George Carlin and nobody else? Well, we're going to find out a little bit more what he does for a living in the next film. I don't know what the government is in the future. It seems like a one world government. It it came true, guys. It's a horrible dictatorship, but I don't know. Some government appointee by these three dudes floating in chairs above him. Like, I, yeah, I don't know why he's picked. It, It never tells you. No, I'm saying why is he important for you guys that it's that's George Carlin and nobody else? This role is vital in selling us on the entire concept of the future. And because they were looking at actors of all ages, I had an epiphany while watching it this time with the now playing glasses on. This movie is a movie about father figures. I don't even think it was intentional when the script was being written, but much like we discussed when we reviewed Night of the Living Dead and hiring an African-American lead actor contextualize that film in a totally different way by having an older man play Rufus what you have are two teenagers with terrible fathers neither one has a mother we don't know whatever happened to their mothers I could talk about that when we get to the comics their mothers are addressed okay but Bill's dad is ignoring him and just horny is he just horny or is he like a hippie too like he yeah he seems very hands-off but maybe he just wants to bone all the time He married a girl who was a senior when Bill and Ted were freshmen and just kicks Bill out of the house so he can bone this wife, Missy. Out of Bill's bedroom. He's going to have sex in his son's bed. (laughs) Yeah. So that's a bad dad. And Ted's dad is an authoritarian. Yes, he's a cop, but he's not encouraging his son in any way. He's threatening his son. And neither one of these kids is doing well in school. Because they don't have good male role models. And in comes Rufus. And because of the age of the actor and everything, what you see is a kind dad who's encouraging, a father figure encouraging these two. And by helping them to learn and encouraging them to also follow their dreams of music, they're able to overcome and actually get an A+. Whereas with the two fathers they were born with, they flunk. And what I like about George Carlin specifically in this role, because there could have been other actors or actresses. We're going to get a female 
Rufus, I think, and face the music. But why George Carlin works for me here, one, I knew who he was. So th that's telling me, okay, this is going to be a comedy. Like, can you imagine, uh, Stuart, I hope you didn't go into this like you did with Face Off, where you're like, <laughs> you took 12 hours to watch it because you couldn't believe this was Harold as, no, no. as some kind of cult classic. But I think audiences, they're thinking, okay, time travel, back to the future, which it's a comedy, but it, it's got a way bigger budget. It's it just, it's got a different flavor to it and this is kind of a, a silly goofy thing to have a comedian opening it up to me it's kind of a wink to the audience to say relax light up that joint and have some fun it just doesn't pull that off for me because i never knew who he was this was my first exposure to him i think for the moms and dads and the audiences who had to take their kids that's why he would have worked yeah and i think he delivers his lines with just enough knowing as to kind of tell the audience have fun with it. Let's not overanalyze this too much. Yeah, I, I feel like he works, but I guess I I thought you guys were going to tell me it only had to be him or because his specific brand of comedy comes through here. No, no, I don't think his comedy comes through. Yeah, Rufus is that funny of a character. And I wonder if you shouldn't have casted it with somebody who was maybe music associated. What we're going to eventually find out is this whole world of the future, San Dimas 2688, 700 years from present day, is living and abiding by the philosophy of Wild Stallions. So if you had, I don't know, Gene Simmons, or we're going to see Clarence Clemens, the saxophonist for the E Street Band, along with the singer for the Motels and the guy from the Tubes. I mean, they feel like whoever we could get, maybe not like perfect musical choices. Little Richard might have been more fun. I was thinking Little Richard, yeah. That, there's a musical choice that would work. <laughs> yeah, I guess I feel like Rufus, to me, could have been a musician. You telling me that's not Carlin shredding the guitar at the end of this movie with that very clever editing? I, yeah, I guess I, I don't feel like it's perfect casting is all that I'm saying. He works. And I do feel like he does telegraph. He's a cool guy. And he sanctifies our leads as great people so that when we see them in the garage, it's a head jerk. We're whiplashed into thinking this is the future of human society. And I want to say, when we get to that scene in the garage, we get Bill and Ted, they're making a music video before they could even play. Some people might say, that, oh, that's a bit weird. Like, wouldn't you start writing songs and all that kind of stuff? But I have to say, you know, I've talked about being in a band. Before I was ever in a band that played music, I was in a band with a friend. We never made any music. We wrote some lyrics. Like, we loved Primus and Fishbone and Jane's Addiction. So, of course, we we're just going to be a rap band because we could get a drum machine and he kind of played bass. But, like, we never did anything. Did we have tons of logos drawn out for our band name? Of course. But, like, we never did anything. It wasn't until a couple years later when I met someone that I actually had a lot of skill at guitar that we started forming songs and, and playing them. Yeah, I was in several bands in junior high and high school. I don't think I ever played a note. Yeah, there's something about the fantasy of it. Yeah, we thought we could have a drum kit with a bunch of boxes, <laughs> I remember. Like, that was going to be our drums for our band, Arnie. No, don't you remember I bought a drum machine, Stuart, for one of our that, bands? That came later, yeah. You didn't like my shoebox drum set. <laughs> I bought a drum machine. I had a Casio keyboard. Yep, our bands could have combined to be a super rap band. But when I moved to Florida, Stuart, I was in bands without you. <laughs> And oh my god. Sadly, some of the people who I was in bands with have grown up to be professional musicians, and they must have really hated the fact that they picked me to be in that band because I couldn't play a note. <laughs> 
I will say I do like Bill and Ted's. They're very brand aware. They, they got their logo. They got their little uh, wild stallion drawing. They should have been born during the YouTube era. Like, I, I feel like you could probably see this a lot where people could put on a really good show, even though they don't have the musical talent, but they're entertaining to watch. I will give you that they do have their own kind of charm. It feels surprising seeing actors so old. And maybe that's just me and my own age looking at it. But you mentioned YouTubers, and I do have nieces that are trying to get into that game right now. And yeah, you almost feel like maybe they should have gone the Goonies way. Maybe this should have been actual teenagers playing the parts of Bill and Ted. Yeah, I think seniors in high school is a little too old for this kind of thing. Like, by then, you should be able to at least play a power chord. But by the way Bill holds a guitar in this, I don't think he can even do that. So I, I do agree with you there. Not just that, but I mean, Keanu Reeves and Alex Winter are what, mid-20s? Yeah. I mean, would it have been something to have Macaulay Culkin or Corey Feldman? Could they have done it? Corey Feldman auditioned. Really? Okay. But I think that sometimes having a good actor is better than having somebody age-appropriate. Again, look A good at- actor for the material. I just, yes, I want to yes. put that caveat there. <laughs> but it, people who can act seriously and not be limited to eight-hour days as well. And it's just, what, two years after this that we're going to have a cultural phenomenon, especially for our generation, called 90210, where there was a 30-year-old playing a high school sophomore. So I don't mind their age. It just strikes me, it's bizarre. I mean, Mike Myers, too. I mean, he was like 30 in doing that Wayne role. But yeah, that was that was, was kind of old. the joke was that he's way too old to be doing this shit. Here, I, I feel like I'm watching like a really good pilot to a Nickelodeon series, but it's being done by guys that are 10 years beyond it. And maybe that isn't weird. You know, we did have Saved by the Bell. We did have Head of the Class. We did have 90210, as you mentioned. But it feels weird to me now as a middle-aged person watching them play young. And I honestly, because I'm a middle-aged person, didn't realize they were even mid-20s. I'm like, yeah, these guys could be high school seniors. But here's what I find about Bill and Ted really early on. And I want to preface, I haven't watched these movies in five years or so. The last time I watched them was when I wrote my mini-review for Bogus Journey in the book. And watching them very critically... Seeing them here in the garage, the first time we're introduced to them, they are incredibly endearing. Their circular logic of, we need Eddie Van Halen to make our band successful. Well, to get Eddie Van Halen, we need a video. Well, to get video, we need to have instruments. Well, to have instruments, we need to know how to play. Well, to learn how to play, we need Eddie Van Halen. And the fact that they then, because they did a circle, celebrate it. And throughout the entire movie, these two... They're not losers, stoners, they're not jerks, they're not Beavis and Butthead who were rude to everybody. These two guys are cuddly doofuses. Yeah, I mean, that's what I was saying at the beginning. There, There is an innocence about them. And there's also mimbos, you know, these male bimbos, they, they kind of stupid. But like you said, Arnie, there is kind of, it's circular logic, but like there is logic, there is reasoning. Their, their vocabulary actually seems a little higher than I would guess. Like I was never saying heinous when, you know, I didn't know what that meant when I saw this movie. Every once in a while, there is a little spark of smarts in there. And I, I think they play it just right. See, for me, I remember just feeling like at the time, 
this felt like way over exaggeration. That my frame of reference was John Hughes. He was the guy that was writing for teenagers and Ferris Bueller. That was someone I could relate to. You know, Breakfast Club. All of those people had a reality. This felt like uh, an exaggeration that was unflattering. Actually, it felt like it was older people saying younger people are stupid. And don't forget. Three out of five of the Breakfast Club were in their mid to late 20s. Yeah, be that as it may. I mean, again, you hear what my point is. Like, there's a reality and relatability that transcends the fact that that some of them were a little bit old for the part. Whereas here, this feels like oldsters making fun of youngsters. I I know in the past, Stuart, you've expressed, like, kind of struggling with some comedies. Because this is clearly a goofy comedy. I'm not going to look for those deep, dramatic John Hughes-type teen moments. Is that still something you, you were expecting, even though they're two silly guys? If it's going to have any more dimension than silly, then yes. But if I'm laughing, I guess it wouldn't be a problem. Yeah, are you okay if something's just silly then? Because I grew up on Mad Magazine. Like, I, I could just go with silly and goofy if I wanted. Occasionally. Yeah, Jacob, you and I have the same influences. And if we're going to equate this to a John Hughes movie, this is far more weird, weird science, science than yeah. any of the dramas. And here, these guys are a little bit more doofy than Chet and Wyatt, but not much. Yeah, and I didn't like weird science. I didn't watch that one because I just... Maybe we're just bumping up against the fact that, yes... This thing is madcap and goofy and simplistic. And again, it's two guys that don't have really a clue, which isn't particularly charming for me to watch for 90 minutes. You see, and my big question would be, are you having fun? Are you laughing? I mean, when they're sitting outside the Circle K and ask a random person, excuse me, when when did the Mongols rule China? I'm laughing out loud at that. I just can you imagine if you're just walking someplace and somebody asks you that? I don't know the answer. Yeah, that and again, that's something I think I appreciate more now because, like, as a kid, I'm like, who are the Mongols? Like, I don't, I don't know. Did they rule China? But I gotta say, you, you called out a Circle K. This is supposed to be San Dimas out here in California. Like, this is a real place. Raging Waters, a, a big water park, is out in San Dimas. That's why I've been there a handful of times. Last time I went, I was like 17 or 18. Just like on the border of L.A. County and the Inland Empire, like way out there. But this is not San Dimas. Circle K's were not in L.A. in the 80s. Like this is Arizona. And I know that because I've been to Waterloo. It's not called Waterloo. It's Sunsplash. But this is all Arizona. It's where I have a bunch of relatives where we go there every year for the summer. But that is something that always seemed weird to me as a kid. I'm like, there's no Circle K's in San Dimas or L.A. or anywhere. I'd never even heard of a Circle K when this came out. It was supposed to be 7-Eleven, but 7-Eleven said, no, you can't use our logo. Circle K was fine with it. But I'm sorry, but strange things are afoot at the 7-Eleven does not work as well as strange (laughs) things are afoot at the Circle K. There's just something about that line. I love that line. I thought they were abbreviating Krispy Kreme. I actually was like, I have no idea what (laughs) Circle K is. I thought it was either a Krispy Kreme or a Crystal Hamburger stand. So you didn't have those out in in your neck of the woods? No, they still don't exist. I don't, do they exist now? Yeah, we have them all over this town. There are like four in this town. (laughs) I've never seen one, which is not to say that they haven't been in front of my eyes. I've just never seen them. But like you said, they're out there because they got to pass their history project. Their history teacher, I'm going to get it right this time. I flubbed in real genius. This is the president of the Lambda Lambda Lambdas. Bernie Casey, absolutely. I know him more as lighter from the very bad James Bond, never say never again. Ooh, that's right. (laughs) But uh, yeah, he turns up in things. And if George Carlin gives you 
I'm the funny guy. This is a guy that's like, I am deadly serious that you need to get an A-plus on this presentation or you flunk out of not just class, not just even their senior year. Like, they're going to be separated because dad will send Ted away to an Alaskan military academy. Which does seem a little weird because they're seniors. Like, they're 18 or very close to 18. Uh, They're not so smart that they skipped a year and they're 16 or 17. So, like, just, like, run away. Then you don't have to go to that military school. Yeah, it's a little bit odd, but it is a nice threat. But I think Bernie Casey, the way he plays this is important, and it does remind me of Revenge of the Nerds, because in Revenge of the Nerds, yes, he's the head of the Lambda 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 fraternity, which is an all-black fraternity, and these nerds apply to get in, and by the bylaws they have to, and Bernie Casey is not pro-nerd, but pretty quickly, you get to see Bernie Casey kind of warming up, and he's still playing that stern self, but he relaxes a little bit, and he- He relaxes a little here when Missy shows up. He remembers that student. But no, I think he even relaxes a little bit with Bill and Ted. When he's talking to them, he's concerned about them, you know? There's a warmth to it. Yes, I agree. I've seen a lot of teachers. I was a teacher, and when I had students failing- I blamed the students. I'm like, you're not putting forth the effort. You're not turning in the work. You have failed this class. I'm not failing you. You failed. And this teacher is far kinder than I was because he's like encouraging them and hoping they pass. And I think because Bernie Casey likes them, that helps me to like them. You ask if I'm laughing. I do think occasionally lines here are funny. I think... It is a one-joke premise, and I think that it is, after a while, long before this movie reaches its big Act 2 turning point where they're actually traveling time, I'm tired of hearing that George Washington is the dude with the wooden teeth chasing Moby Dick. I think that a little (laughs) of it goes a long way, and they needed other targets, maybe, to sustain the comedy. I laughed out loud. Caesar's more than that salad dressing (laughs) dude. I I will say, I think... You know, watching it this time, I noticed there's a lot of montages in this film and like it's barely 90 minutes. Like, I feel like, yeah, they do stretch the material as far as they could. Like they use those montages to speed through a lot of stuff and and cover a lot of material. But yeah, again, you could go deeper. You could go a little bit more obscure, I guess. But again, I feel like this really is a kid's film. Like it's it's a PG film. And and so, yeah, George Washington, I knew what that was when I was the, the age that I saw this at. I knew, you know, Caesar, Caesar dressing, Caesar salad. Okay, I get that joke. I don't know if you want to go too deep, though. To be honest, I mean, when I first saw this film, I was 14 years old. And now watching it as a 40-something, I can say in both times, I don't know much more about world history than these guys do. So the fact that they're doofuses educating themselves about history helps me not to feel either superior or inferior to these guys, I'm kind of being reminded of stuff I forgot from history classes as this movie goes on. I mean, I know the big things. I know what Napoleon Bonaparte did. I know who Beethoven is. I know who Socrates is. Although, swear to God, this movie makes me call him Socrates every time. I had a philosophy professor that claims, no, this film's super smart because that's how you actually pronounce it. I don't know if that's true or not, but I had maybe the professor was punking us. I don't know. I think he might be. (laughs) There's a part of me that likes to think that professors need to make jokes and that would be a good one to play. 
but they do get introduced to Rufus, and because they're naive, they're going to just immediately go with the fact that this guy in the phone booth is time-traveling, especially when duplicates of them show up from the future. Yeah, I was like 12 when this came out. I didn't get the 69 joke. And one thing I did notice when they're, you know, again, I know this film real well, so I'm kind of looking at things in the background. They do obscure that second booth because when we see it return, it's full of historical dudes. And here they kind of just like dirtied up the window. There's probably no one even in it, but they they make it like you can't even see into that booth when it is full. But again, this is a fun little scene because I like these characters and that they're going to talk to themselves and they're just like, they're so excited. It's hard for me not to get excited too. Yeah, they're primarily happy people. Now, I think Ted is perhaps a little bit more naive than Bill. Bill can get angry and pissy sometimes. Ted, he's like a puppy dog, isn't he? I mean, isn't that Keanu Reeves? Maybe. He does have a band called Dogstar. And he got super mad when someone killed his dog. Oh, yeah. So did I. That was a cute dog. But I just think that because these guys are so energetic that I am just grooving to the vibe this movie's putting out. And it doesn't hurt that it's got a really good soundtrack going, you know? <laughs> the op- I was counting the seconds until the soundtrack came up. You're a Power Tool fan because, look, I love these films. Uh, the second one, I think, has a better soundtrack. This one, I was never into hair metal or glam metal. I don't dig the soundtrack here. <laughs> okay, Stuart, maybe you remember this. Maybe you don't. 1992... <laughs> I'm headed to a party, and I'm DJing the party via mixtapes, right? And I have Stuart on the phone, and I'm working up my mixtapes, and I'm throwing on some Nirvana, and I'm throwing on some Right Said Fred, but I insist each side of the mixtape is starting with something from Bill and Ted's Excellent Adventure, and... One of the songs was I Can't Break Away by Big Pig. And Stuart was listening to me do this and like helping me organize the playlist. And he's like, and then there's whatever that pig song is. (laughs) But people rocked out to I Can't Break Away by Big Pig. Who is Big Pig? I noticed that this time. Like, I've never heard of Big Pig. No, that was actually a single beyond this movie. I didn't even know it was in this movie. I thought it was for this movie, but... I mean, a lot of this music was written for this movie, and you get leaving from Clue doing a song. (laughs) So does it make you nostalgic? Is it important that you saw it at an impressionable time around this decade in order to feel that rush? I think that the fact that I got into hair metal at this time, so I like hair metal to this day, I listen to the hair metal channel on Sirius XM, that I can still rock to this music in ways that older people or younger people couldn't. I think that helps me. But yeah, I'm I'm rocking to this soundtrack as they're going through time and Shark Island is playing. I will say again, I, this music doesn't really appeal to me. I was never into it. Just for the film in general, I think it helps that I saw this at 12 years old. Because as an adult, I'd probably recognize its charm. But I probably wouldn't have like the love for it that I do. Like It's just a film I've watched so many times growing up throughout my life. Like It's just, you know, it's good comfort food. Yeah, I get that. Again, my main reason for being here is try to understand why people would want to like Bill and Ted. What is it about them? that you'd want to spend an entire movie with. Because again, my bias is I'd never want to spend a movie with a fool. And I guess what I would say is they have the charm of a children's television show. And because we were from the 80s, 
I know what they're doing. If you pulled up The Sweet Life of Zack and Cody or iCarly, people would probably still have that instant connection. They're so positive and innocent and, and all the things that you're, you're saying would be equally true of other eras of children's programming. But because this is our era and our youth, I think maybe it means something more. Look, this is way more important to me than Salute Your Shorts, than Small Wonder, <laughs> other kids' shows that I saw around this age. I agree, and I saw that stuff too, as well as a number of high school movies, many of which involve the Corys, none of which I find as enjoyable as an adult as I do this. Yeah, and I think part of it is because of the sci-fi bent too. Like, time travel, that's always you know conceptually a fun concept in a movie a movie could screw it up but like i'm always down for time travel like i think that can always be fun in a film yeah that feel particularly the fact that it looks like a phone booth felt i was getting a big doctor who vibe like that was my show in the 80s yeah and one of the comics that came out just a few years back they do call out that it's copying doctor who it does feel like that had to be an influence no the writers had never seen or heard of doctor who when they wrote this it was a time traveling van and then when they got it to a studio and that it, was out of the budget. <laughs> no, they said everybody's going to call it a Back to the Future ripoff, even though you guys wrote this script before Back to the Future. So make it something else. And so they're just going back and forth. What can we make it? What would be funny? A phone booth. They said, thanks to the Internet, they've heard a million times that they ripped off Doctor Who, but neither of them had heard of Doctor Who until Matt Smith or one of those guys rebooted it. Richard Matheson's kid hasn't heard of Doctor Who? Hmm, maybe. <laughs> and I think it's kind of funny, you know, that there was that thing, I guess, you know, back when college kids did pranks like swallowing goldfish or stuffing as many people as they could into a phone booth, because that was fun, like, in the 50s or 60s. Like, there is some fun there. Yeah, yeah it's this tiny booth, and they're going to have to cram so many people in there. You jogged my memory, Jacob. They did specifically say that back then phone booth cramming was a big thing in college. And because they'd have so many people traveling, they thought this was a good idea. Yeah, something I know because of Mad Magazine from my dad's era. Like he collected it. He had his still from when he was a kid. And like, yeah, a lot of phone booth cramming jokes. So the first place they go back in time to Rufus is going to be their guide on this first trip. He's not going to accompany them on all of them. He could have. But he's going to leave them to their own. But he's going to go with them to 1805 France. And the goal is to just observe. This film will be about collecting historical dudes. But the vibe I get from Rufus is you're just supposed to watch. I couldn't actually figure it out. I had no idea. I know he's there to help them. First of all, I thought it was a paper. I thought they had to type something up. And then, like, it turns out to be a presentation. I didn't know that that was going to be. But, of course, that makes sense why you would collect people. I didn't really... I thought that maybe he had all the time in the world to teach them what they didn't learn in a year of history class. No, what we find out at the Circle K is that time still moves forward. Like, you, you, ha you have to be present in those moments. You can't travel back, I guess. If they miss their time spot for the presentation, they can't go back and fix that. Like, they have to be there. That makes no sense to me. It hurts my head. But Artie, how many times have you called out that people say this is the most accurate version of time travel? I know. I know they do. Until Avengers. Now people are saying Avengers Endgame is the most accurate version of time travel. Because you know what? Physicists change their mind. They find new theories and they go with it. And back in the 90s, the theory that Bill and Ted was the most accurate is what was popularized. But 
The fact that Bill and Ted show up the night before at Circle K, right, and talk to themselves, why couldn't they just hang out for the next 18 hours? Yeah, I know. Yes, I see the plot hole. I wasn't sure why they were going around time, but I assumed that they, I don't know, I didn't really get it. And it was kind of weird the way that Napoleon just kind of falls into the, the plot. Yeah, a cannon explosion throws him, and he just happens to land where the phone booth was. It's it's a little convenient. I do find it funny, though, when when they go back to, uh, I, I believe it's Ted's house, and you, <laughs> Napoleon shows, you just see his legs dangling in the background in that tree, like because they want to <laughs> tell you he's there, but they can't let the character see him, so you, you just see these feet hanging from the tree the whole time. This is where the movie really becomes about more than just Bill and Ted, and each of these historical figures they find are like Bill and Ted in that, I mean, Napoleon was a horrible conqueror, and, you know, there's a reason they call it Napoleon Syndrome. He was a short man who tried to make up for that by conquering nations, yet here, he's kind of funny, and... I think every single person they pick up along the way has the same kind of endearing quality that Bill and Ted have. I mean, the fact that I love Socrates so much, like, he doesn't speak English in this film, he's just running around in robes. I love him and Billy trying to pick up chicks at the mall, though. Like, yeah. Yes! <laughs> That's great stuff. It's that they don't treat them like serious historical figures. Like, everyone's in on the joke. It's great stuff? Like, I feel like it's good kitty fun. I'll go that far. Yeah, no, no, that's what I mean. For the audience they're shooting for, this is fun stuff. I think it's fun today, and I think I would find it fun even if I hadn't seen it then. There's a lot of stuff I might not have related to, but Napoleon just being a jerk who is going to go bowling and (laughs) eat ice cream, I still laughed out loud now, and I didn't remember some of the jokes. But it's kind of all the same joke, right? I mean, like, do we need so many historical figures? Could it just be one guy? Like, would it have been enough to drag Napoleon to modern day times? Like, the fact that there's so many of them, I feel like, just means that they can tell different variations of the same joke. Yeah, it's it's people out of time jokes. What, what is Joan of Arc going to do in our modern era? They're, they're She's going to lead aerobics instead of lead an army. Right, yeah. Fish out of water. And I think that is a situational comedy that I adored as a kid that I don't patronize much now. I think I'm going to use the dreaded word, according to Stuart, going back to Men in Black. Like, I think if I saw this today, I go, oh, this is cute. Like, that was amusing. Like, I have a passion for it because I've grown up on this film, and I loved it as a kid, and it's just something I've watched. I mean, I just shared it with my girls for the first time a, a year ago about, but I'll concede, like, if this is my first time watching, I'll be like, oh, that was amusing. I think I agree with you. I think I watched this movie a lot in college and things, and in the 90s, I think I watched it a lot. My wife hates it, so I haven't seen it much since the 90s. My wife hates them, too. (laughs) (laughs) I think because I've seen it so much is why I'm as emphatic about it as I am. But I think even if I I just saw this today and wasn't familiar with what they'd done before on the Disney Channel, yeah, I'd still find it cute and amusing. I mean, yeah, there are time... I mean, the problem is I don't even... They don't exist to me. But I know that there's time travel movies like this that are made all the time, and I, I don't see them with young stars and... And all of that. Wasn't there like some kid in King Arthur's Court movie recently? I mean, I feel like we don't go see that now. Like, we're not drawn to that now. Like, 
again, there's something that sets this one apart. They're kind of two fools, as you called out, but you kind of want to hang out with them. It's got this music angle. Like, I do feel like there, there's enough weirdness or goofiness or just wackiness. Again, going back to Mad Magazine, there's just enough oddball stuff in this that I think it sets it apart from a lot of, you know, a kid in King Arthur's court. Maybe that's goofy and wacky and oddball, too. I just, I've never seen it. Right. And I guess that's my point is like, it feels like something appropriate for a really young audience and me evaluating it now, I feel like, well, I'm just kind of like, I'm too old for this. Like, and the, and my, my tether is that I'm not too old to remember the time period because I remember the metal scene and I remember this era. Uh, that's really my best hook for staying on board as they collect all the characters. So are you hating every second then? No, am I using the word hate? I'm never using, I, I haven't said the word hate. I don't hate it. I'm not loving it. But you're you're nitpicking it to such a degree, it feels. I'm not loving it. I, I And again, what it is, is I feel like I'm with two people that if we went and turned on Disney Channel would be like, I don't want to watch this, but it would be the same energy level. It would be the same youthful vibe. It would have the same kind of fish out of water jokes. Look, if Hannah Montana was time traveling and just talking with this silly language, again, maybe she does. I never watched it. But there's stuff here that sets it apart from a lot of that where I just I don't feel like they go into that territory. I could be wrong because I don't watch a lot of it, though. I think, Jacob, you hit the nail on the head, though, with when you mentioned Small Wonder. And I started thinking about the teenage shows I watched in the 80s, Growing Pains. Out of this world, I think that was the name of it. Yes, uh, where she touched her fingers and it froze time because she was half alien and she talked to her dad who like lived in the music box or something. Yeah. yeah. My Secret Identity, where Jerry O'Connell was a superhero who flew with spray paint. Yeah, spray paint. He had needed that aerosol to fly. Man, this, these are all coming back to me. And Salute Your Shorts. I watched all these shows religiously, but none of them are as well done as this, and if I were to watch them today, I wouldn't have the affection that I have for this. This, and I think all those shows now would be what you're equating with the Disney Channel shows, Stuart, and this is a cut above. And if you show me a cut above Hannah Montana, which I have seen, if you give me something a cut above, I think I could still appreciate it. And why is it a cut above? Because of the humor, because of the time travel aspect because Bill and Ted are lovable doofuses and it's not trying to be more than it is. I would say all of that was probably just as true for any of those shows that are really popular right now that aren't age appropriate for us. But some of the shows I mentioned were really popular back then and they weren't a cut above. They were your average run-of-the-mill kid junk. Yeah, it, it's stuff I remember. I remember Small Wonder. Remember Salute Your Shorts. I'm not buying the DVD box set and revisiting them all the time, though. What what I'm confronting is I feel like I've opened somebody's toy chest. And these were toys that they loved to play with. And I'm respectfully playing along with them. But it doesn't mean a whole lot to me. I guess that's the way I would look at it. And I don't think that it's particularly clever. I think it's pretty obvious. All the, Again, it's one joke. Socrates, how do we bring a heavy metal rock and roll thing to each of these eras? Socrates is going to be impressed by lyrics from Kansas's Dust in the Wind. And, you know, they're going to go to medieval times and romance babes on the balcony and get super excited about an Iron Maiden. Yeah, exactly. Which I didn't get at 12 because I didn't know what Iron Maiden was. I didn't know the band. <laughs> See, and I knew the band and the torture device. So 
I appreciated the double entendre going on there. But, I mean, they pick up Billy the Kid, they pick up Socrates, but let's go to medieval England, because there they don't pick up anybody historical. Nobody from there comes to the presentation. And that's one of their required time periods. But I think Joan of Arc counts. They say medieval times or the medieval period. They, I don't think it has to be from England specifically. So they still get that A+. Do they have parameters that they have to cover? I didn't even pick up on that. Yeah, they had to get the Old West. They had to get Ancient Greece. And they had to get medieval times. Those were the three required time periods. The rest are extra credit. I didn't even get that. Yeah, Bernie Casey makes the assignment explicit, and I never caught it before this one. It is an oral report where you have to have historical figures from each of the assigned time periods, and the presentation must be what those historical figures think about life in San Dimas in present times. Right. Yeah, that you're supposed to apply it to modern day. That was the only thing that I got it. And to them, modern day is being in a rock band. So, again, the jokes are always fused back to how it relates to Iron Maiden or Kansas or, or what have you. Come on, they make a Star Wars reference, Darth Ted. And, and did he call himself Luke Bill? Yes, he does. Yeah, not Bill Skywalker, Luke Bill. But this here is a big scene for me because they dress up in the suits of armor and they have this sword fight and they're just fooling around like a couple of doofuses. But Ted is going to fall down the stairs. Bill's going to come around the corner and see Ted stabbed through the heart by one of the king's guards who thinks somebody's infiltrated the castle. And now Bill has real emotion dealing with his friend's death. And I think this takes them above Wayne and Garth. This shows true love between these two friends. Yeah, there, there is some unfortunate, uh, hasn't age will, no homo stuff that goes on in these movies. But I do feel like, yeah, they do actually care about each other. Beavis and Butthead, they would never do this. Again, that's part of their innocence and appeal to me. Undeniable. You guys are citing something very correctly that's specific about them. They are the least caustic of all the doofuses you could name from the time period. They're not mean and or, or enterprising in any way. They're not wanting to get successful at the expense of anybody else. They just want to be great rockers, and they don't care about school, and they've been forced into doing this. And as you say, that makes them kind of sweet. I guess, again, that, again, makes them seem childlike. You know, it makes them feel like something for small children audience to consume. See, and I think they have childlike wonder without being childish. Well, they're kind of childish. I mean, maybe you see other dimensions, but I mean, they're childish. But they're not. They're not ignorant. They have a street smartness about them. They don't have a book smartness at all, but these are guys who are going to look both ways before they cross the street. You know, that's the way I can equate it, is they know how to function in the world. They just are trying to live a dream. But before they leave, they actually get captured. Ted didn't die because he fell out of the suit on the stairs and nobody saw him. Yeah, they stabbed an empty suit of armor, whatever, okay. <laughs> and so they're going to be beheaded because they liked the Iron Maiden. And somehow Socrates and Billy the Kid got in the executioner outfits and saved them? Yeah, here, here's the thing. If this film, if it was just Socrates and Billy the Kid and Napoleon, 
yeah, okay, you could spend time showing Billy the Kid and, and Socrates sneaking around and how do they get these outfits. I, I just, I, that this is not an action film. Like, that is not the point of this film. So, yeah, they kind of gloss over it, and I'm fine with that. So, Will, you at least can see that it's a lot of people to cram into the phone booth. Like, they, when they go for the extra credit, it's like you lose track of some of these people. Yes, I agree. There's a lot of people, and after they leave medieval times, they spend less and less time picking each one up. Yeah, it, no, it's a montage. There's a lot of montages in this film, and here's one of them. And while Bill and Ted have their time travel montage, we do catch up with Napoleon, who's left in the care of Ted's little brother, Deacon. Yeah, they try to take him out to, what, Ziggy Piggy? Have some ice cream? That's Farrell's. You guys ever been to Farrell's? This is a real place. Yeah. Yeah, but Farrell's wouldn't let them use the name, so it's Ziggy Piggy. <laughs> yeah. I think their gimmick is they bring out, like, 30 scoops in a coffin, and if you eat it, like, you're dead. That's the whole thing. No one ever does. This reminded me of, uh, we had a place called Swinson's, and they had the earthquake. Mm, yep. And it had eight scoops of ice cream. And I remember one time my parents left town, so my sister and my godparents and I all went to see if we could each eat two scoops of ice cream and share an earthquake. And that's kind of what we have here. But Napoleon, he's he is a pig. He's got it all over his mouth, all down the bib. I do like this Napoleon. Not as good as Ian Holm in, in Time Bandits at Napoleon. That's my favorite Napoleon. Mm-hmm. But this one, yeah. I, I love, like, there's that last bite of ice cream and, like, he, you know, knocks the kid's spoon out of the way with his so he could get it. Yeah, like you said, Arnie, he's all covered in ice cream and gets tossed out of that bowling alley. He still has a sword. That's how you know this isn't really California, that it's Arizona. You just walk around with weapons. It was the 80s and it was a sword. <laughs> <laughs> it, it is kind of weird, like, just watching this, you know, f- with the now playing glasses. Like, why is no one, like, freaking out that a dude's dressed as Napoleon, like, in the bowling alley? Like, think he'd get a lot of stares. And he's trying to cheat so obviously. I, I did, yeah, when it's projected ab- above him for everyone to see. <laughs> and he gets ditched. He goes, like, screw this dick. And Bill and Ted, they end up with a broken time machine and... Go to the future. They get to see the world their music created. And is that why it breaks? I'm confused. Like, shortly thereafter, you know, the, the joke is so that we can see people very seriously air guitar and, like, emphatically let them know how important their noodling has been to a whole society. I get that joke. We see it sparking on their way to the future. And I think it got damaged during their hijinks in medieval England. I think so, because... Somebody tied it down to a wagon and called them heretics, and the rope went over the top. I really tried to pay attention watching it this time, and I think that's where it was damaged, and each time travel made it worse. Yeah, for reasons, all of a sudden, they just get stuck in 1 million B.C., and uh, it's a bubblegum joke. It's so that we can see all of these, you know, serious figures chew bubblegum, create a big wad, and put the antenna back on. Because that's what people had on their TV around this time as well. And, and Matheson, not the novelist, but his son who wrote, co-wrote this, you know, he talked about how they were working on a film that was just going to be skits, and these were two characters. And, and I do feel like this still kind of follows that format. Like, you know, when they collect each character, it's kind of a joke. You know, Joan of Arc, you know, she's praying to God, and she looks up, and there's Bill and Ted, and, and like, leading her into the booth. And, yeah, here and. 1 million BC, uh, chewing the gum and sticking it all together. I do feel like 
at times it, it does feel very much like vignettes, like little comedy skits that they're doing. That said, I love it when Keanu Reeves just like he's got that wad of gum. He doesn't take the gum out of his mouth and stick it to it. He puts that to his face and just just sticks it on there right from his mouth. In this day and age of germophobia <laughs> everywhere, watching these actors spit something out of their mouth maybe it's gum maybe it's something else but they all spit it out of their mouth and then hand it to the next person and then yes keanu reeves adds his own by bringing it to his mouth i am just disgusted but finally they get back to the present and it's almost time for the report they got two hours ted forgot to wind his watch even though he reminded himself yeah, we get that replay of the Circle K scene. They did edit that down a little bit. We don't have to see line for line. They jump ahead to the 69, dude. Yeah, it starts with 69 and, and goes from there. We see it from the other Bill and Ted's perspective. But then they get back home and Missy is working in the backyard, completely unfazed when a phone booth appears in the backyard filled with historical figures. That's what I'm talking about, some of the humor here. Like, Napoleon, like, he's bowling. No one thinks that is weird. Missy, like, yeah, I'll take you and your friends or whatever to your presentation, but you gotta do the chores first. Again, there's just something madcap about accepting that beef oven and soak crates are just hanging out. Yeah, Genghis Khan is cleaning the toilet. I mean, they, again, there's a lot of it. And if you love the joke, it's told again and again and again. I would just say that I feel like it has run its course by this point, right? Like you are ready for the movie to to wind up at this point, get to a conclusion. No, for me, its peak moment is still yet to come. The mall. The mall, yeah. (laughs) After they do their chores, because these historical figures need to comment on the San Dimas of today. So how are you going to introduce people to today well i don't know that a lot of our listeners will know what a mall is but in the 80s that's where you went was the mall especially for teenagers it was the hangout you were indoors and lots of shopping and and Stuart, again not every joke's gonna work for me here yeah you're right sometimes they get old but every once in a while like when bill is telling socrates hey watch your robes when they're going up the escalator very helpful very charming of bill like to help socrates out and you know it's kind of an obvious joke but i think my favorite joke at the mall is when you got uh, freud socrates and billy the kid hitting on some young ladies and they get rejected and freud's holding a corn dog upright and it slowly goes down best like (laughs) recommend just for that joke yeah, I, I, I'll, it's a winner. I'll give you that. I'm not a hater. I'm not hating this. It's a very simple premise that the 80s exploited ad nauseum. Splash, Crocodile Dundee. I mean, there were just so many fish out of water. Almost every movie, really, at a certain age range that you see as a child is this movie. They get some good jokes in here. But I guess what I would ask is, do you feel like you're getting a story that is as satisfying as a Back to the Future? It's that not that kind, kind of movie. movie. It's yeah. not a plot-driven movie. It has a plot, but that's not what's driving every single thing. I mean, this film has no biff. There is no antagonist in this film. It's kind of Ted's dad. Yeah, it's weird that way. Yeah, you're right. The dad comes the closest. But even he, because he's going to send Ted away to military, that's that's the threat. That's It's not enough. If they flunked out, who cares? But it's the having to separate them and, and being sent off to a military academy. That's the evil. 
Yeah, if you're looking at this story-wise, we already know they're the future of humanity. Like, there's not even much tension in are they going to succeed at this. We're told they're going to succeed, like, at the beginning of the film. So, to me, again, this is Mad Magazine. Like, here's a bunch of panels with gags in them, and it's it's wacky and off the wall. And, yeah, sometimes they're the obvious joke, and sometimes it's Sigmund Freud with a corndog, and I'm just busting up. And unlike the fish-out-of-water comedies you referenced, Stuart, here the fish-out-of-water comedy is a small portion of it, or at least it's not the same joke again and again like that night movie with Jean Renault and Christina Applegate. How is it? That's exactly what I'm talking about. How is it not the same movie? Because here the fish-out-of-water stuff is a brief bit in the mall. Yeah, it's basically a music video, which I think is kind of genius for a film about a band again here's another montage i love that sped up version of the classical music that's going and then the guitar kicks in that's extreme are they doing all of it do you want to play with the opening that is classical music in a rock okay. vibe that is all this extreme song and i didn't even know who extreme was for another couple of years i don't like them but i do like this song so i'll give them credit for that but yeah, this this is it's a music video setting up a problem that Bill and Ted are going to have to solve, and and showing how the characters are learning about San Dimas, and you get some jokes in there. And Genghis Khan, as he's using a baseball bat as a weapon, that's Al Leong, who we've talked about him. He he's a yes. the ultimate bad guy. He was the torturer in Lethal Weapon. He was one of the terrorists in Die Hard. He's doing most of his own moves here. He was in Big Trouble in Little China. Yeah, you get some fun with the skateboard and now everybody else. I think is pretty much a nobody, but I like that guy, uh, Jane Wieland from the Go Go's. Oh, Jane Wieland, yeah, she was from Clue. Come on now. Or the Go-Go's. Yeah. <laughs> but I I never recognized her in this. I did not realize that was a Go-Go as Joan of Arc. But I'm laughing when she takes over the aerobics class. I'm laughing when Genghis Khan is beating up the mannequin. I don't understand why Billy the Kid starts firing his gun in the middle of the mall. But he's just Billy the Kid. I can see why that would bring some cops. Yeah, I'm, I was never sure why Joan of Arc takes over aerobics. Like, if there's an army recruiting office in that mall, like, she should go there or something. But, okay. My biggest problem is Beethoven is deaf, and yet when that guy turns on the synthesizer, Beethoven enjoys it. Well, I mean, he isn't deaf all his life, just at the end of his life. So this was... Yeah, but that is the joke, is when Bill and Ted show up in his time, like, everyone else reacts to the phone booth coming in. He doesn't. He just keeps playing, and they grab him and take him because he's deaf. He couldn't hear him. I feel like this stuff is better than the Act 2 stuff of them going around. I don't know whether it's because the mall is a unifier that all the audience understands or whether we just don't have enough time in the individual time periods to really milk the humor for all it's worth. But I feel like the movie is actually getting better as it's nearing the climax. I agree. This, Like I said, when you asked if I'm getting tired of it, here, this mall scene is my absolute favorite moment in the film. And then, yes, I will admit it slides downhill after they all get arrested. I feel like breaking them out of jail is one hurdle too many to jump, but I do like the thought of, when we're done with this, I'm going to go back in time and place a tape recorder and set a timer to it, and then it just goes off. Yeah, no, I like the little... Uh 
they're going to call it a time game and bogus journey. This little thing. Yeah. Well, you know what? If we do this in the future and set things up. Oh, look, here's the keys. I, I guess I did steal my dad's keys or here's that tape recorder or a trash can's going to fall on my dad. So we can sneak everyone out the back window. I love they tell Missy, hey, can you just go around the back and wait for us? Like, what is she? I, I guess she doesn't really realize anything that's going on around her. Is Waterloo Water Park Raging Waters? Well, it's supposed to be. If this was in San Dimas, it would be Raging Waters. But this is in Mesa, Arizona, so it's Sunsplash. Okay. Because I've been to Raging Waters and I didn't recognize it. No, no, no. I've been to Sunsplash. I, I, like, I was super excited the first time I went. I'm like, this is the water park from Bill and Ted? Excellent. It also had a pretty good arcade there, a huge arcade and a mini golf course. But yeah, the Bill and Ted leave everyone at the mall because they, they had to go get Napoleon who is, yeah, of course he's at Waterloo because he fought in the Battle of Waterloo. But it is funny that he would intentionally go to Waterloo. And, of course, he's a dick, so he's going to, like, pick up children and And move them them out out of the the way. way. (laughs) (laughs) And I feel like indecent exposure arrest there. With that white long john underwear, once you get that wet, you're seeing everything. I don't care how little Napoleon is. (laughs) But... They round him up and then have to break everybody out of jail. Yeah, I do love Napoleon while he's waiting with Missy. He tries to put the moves on her. I saw that for the very first time this watching. He's like sliding over and then Bill and Ted come back and he's like, oh, I wasn't doing anything. Yeah, what you're having is you're having a lot of payoff for all of the stuff that they set out with Missy, the hot stepmom and all of that. I feel like suddenly the pace is such that even if the jokes aren't all winners, they're happening at more frequency that, I, I, again, this ending is just so much stronger than where we started. I, I have one question, though. You know, I've often said a time travel movie without a paradox doesn't make much sense. And so far, we haven't had a paradox. But thinking about it this time, I have a paradox to propose and see if you guys can straighten this out for me, okay? Nope, but go ahead and try. (laughs) So at the beginning of the movie, Ted's dad lost his keys. Mm -hmm. And what we're going to find out is in the future, Ted's dad had his keys because Ted's going to give them back to him. Ted's going to steal the keys in the future and take them to the past where he leaves them. No, no, no. He travels from the future after this movie ends he travels to the past before we, the film starts and takes the keys and puts them in the into that moment where they need them at the jail okay so he doesn't take the keys from the future he jumps to the past and takes the keys correct okay cuz i'm like did the keys cease to exist no no i, I actually the, the way that they look at time it's kind of like slaughterhouse five like everything happens Exactly as it is that we know that there can be no change. You can't do back to the future and go back and twist things because everything only happens once. There's nothing malleable about it. If a garbage can is falling out of the sky, then they were successful at doing that. And if that guy couldn't find his keys at the beginning of the movie, it's because, yeah, future Bill and Ted had already gone back and stolen those keys. And that was the joke that they were like, we don't have your keys. But in fact, they just didn't know it yet. Okay, okay. And I did like the very subtle thing I, again, didn't notice till this time. When they use those keys to break out the crew, did you guys notice like a whole bunch of prostitutes are getting out too? Yes, yes. (laughs) It's historical dudes and prostitutes in that prison. (laughs) And some guy with a giant mohawk. I love that guy. (laughs) It's the 80s. You always got to have a punk in there with a mohawk. But 
Arnie, the, the mall is the peak. Like, I, I, that is the funnest moment for me. But I do really enjoy the, this end presentation. And this is what I'm saying, Bill and Ted. Maybe you guys don't need to really learn to play guitars because you know how to put on a show. That's more than half the battle, I think, is just being able to entertain people. Like, Gore, not great music, great live show. Like, a lot of fun. So, yeah, again, if this is modern day. Give these guys a YouTube channel because this end presentation is great. Like, they just need to focus their creative energy in the right direction. Yeah, but who's controlling the lighting and the curtains? They raced in there at the last moment, and they've got this thing, all the spotlights going everywhere. And, and they did the time game again. In the future, after this, after they stole the keys, they came up with some lighting program and gave that to the guy off screen so he would have it for when they showed up. I'm guessing. That's not in the film, but... That makes sense. <laughs> Okay, I will go with Anything that. Anything that doesn't make sense, it's because they traveled in the future afterwards and did stuff in the past. But I do like this presentation. It is yet another montage, but it's got a good song going. Yeah, it's a music video. And it's got good jokes in it where Freud analyzes Ted and... I, I love that when Freud asks if Bill wants to go, he's like, no, I just got a minor Oedipal complex. <laughs> I don't know if you could have an Oedipal complex if it's your stepmom, but whatever, I'll go with it. Yeah, and the fact that Bill knows what an Oedipal complex is. Yes, that, that's what I'm saying. They're always smart enough at the right time. And then Napoleon is putting out his plan for Waterloo, and Ted's like, I don't think that's going to work. Using a risk board at that. Yeah, yes. the show is, it's, it is, it is, in many ways, it's the only thing you need to see. Like this in the mall, like it gives everyone of the historical figures their best moment. Like we get them in, again, it's all about timing for me with comedy. Like we see in quick succession, them do a shtick and yeah, it all relatively working. And everyone gets like a fun moment. And in the end you feel like, yeah, Bill and Ted deserve that A. They just actually deserve to pass history class, not just because they grabbed historical figures, but they made a really fun presentation. And they learned. I mean, the fact that they are presenting that they are giving speeches contextualizing the people shows that their travels did pay off. They did learn some things. Now, I did see some photographs. This was a reshot ending. The original ending actually took place just in the classroom and Bill and Ted were drawing on a chalkboard as these people talk. No, not good. No, not good at all. And yet I never gave a history presentation for the entire school in an auditorium. So it's a little extravagant. But I again, bigger is better when you're going for comedy of, of this broad. And I do love that we get to see other students' presentation. You get this female student. It's very, like, uh, class-oriented. Not classes in the school class, but, you know, your income level. Like, very oriented that way and very, very social justice warrior. And then you get the jock, and he, he's totally bombing. So he just got to go with praising the high school football team to get everyone to cheer for him. Like, I, I do like that we get a level set of where these students are. Yeah, I, I do laugh. Sam Davis football rules! That's all it takes to get a cheer. But it ends actually with them getting what they want and feeling like nothing's at all that different for them. They're practicing in their garage. They're still not rock stars. That was the whole point. So what if they pass school? That just meant that they weren't going to be separated. What they really want is still unattainable until Rufus comes back. With the princesses, it's almost like, congratulations, guys, I bring you women. <laughs> this well, is they not were going to have to marry those old evil dudes in England. So, I mean... Kind of helping them out, getting them out of those arranged marriages. Yeah, but turning them into indentured servant illegal aliens. I do feel like that's going to have a, a 
quite the effect on time, though. Like removing, I don't know, maybe those, <laughs> they never turned into queens or anything. So then maybe they're not a big deal. And what I never realized was the brunette princess is an actress who I've seen a thousand times in Better Off Dead. She's Monique, the French exchange student. Is she Monique? Oh, okay. <laughs> Blew my mind when I realized that this time. I, she looked familiar, but I didn't look her off. Okay. Christmas. Yeah, another movie I could review right now without watching it. Same here. I mean, I didn't need to watch Bill and Ted's Excellent Adventure, but I wanted to. Never saw it. Wow. Almost like a weekly rental for us. Now I just feel like we need to do the Savage Steve Holland retrospective. <laughs> does he have more than that in One Crazy Summer? He now does uh, kid shows on Nickelodeon. Oh, they'd fit right in. <laughs> mm-hmm. There you go. Exactly my point. This was not originally the ending. There were beginning and end scenes that were also cut that there are photos out there. There were opening scenes before the garage band thing that show Bill and Ted at school and they're picked on and they're not liked and they ask a couple girls to prom and they get laughed at. We get to see that football player, San Dimas football rules, picking on them and things. Then when they go to medieval times, the time period, yes, not the yes. themed restaurant. <laughs> they do ask the princesses, will you go to prom with us? Well, there was an ending where they actually go to prom with the princesses. There's photos out there. They're wearing like tuxedo tops, but dress shorts. I don't know how that would have worked. I kind of like removing them from the high school place and just having it end with Rufus riffing on the guitar. Yeah, he brings them a couple more bandmates. Now they got a drummer and a keyboard player. They still need a bassist. Maybe we'll get that in the next film. I already know the answer. <laughs> but yeah, he, he brings them a couple more bandmates and yeah, he gets to shred on that guitar. And cool guitars. They said they they needed cool guitars so they could make a video. I hate those guitars with no headstock and I, I think they look awful. How do you tune it is what I want to know. The tuning pegs are just on the bottom instead of the top. They're just on the bottom where you usually string the strings through to string them up top and you turn these little pegs. That's it. Oh, well, it's still, I still think it looks cool. Lisa Turtle played a bass like that when they had a band and Saved by the Bell. Hated that too. <laughs> I think the most unrealistic thing in this film is that apparently 700 years in the future, like they still have physical media. Rufus brings, I don't know, it's got a picture that moves on the cover, but brings a CD or something. Maybe, maybe they just have digital hologram art for their MP3s in the future. But yeah, he's got to get their autographs for his kids. If it was 1997 and I watched a movie that took place in the future year of 2020 and somebody pulled out a vinyl LP, I'd be like, that's so unrealistic. People still have LPs in 2020. That's the hipster thing 700 years from now is CDs. They come back. Hold on to your CDs, kids. They're going to be worth something someday. <laughs> and then we have the credits roll to a song I am repulsed by. Another Power Tool song, I believe. I think it's the only Power Tool song on here. Oh, I thought there were a few of them. Okay. It's called Two Heads Are Better Than One. It played earlier in the movie during the montage where they're picking up all those people. And here it plays over the end credits. Now, if you listen to the lyrics, what it's about is two brothers who like to have devils three ways with women. They prefer sex where their brother is involved. Oh, so the heads are penis heads. Yeah. Yeah, but that's metal music all over, right? Lyrics that are inappropriate for children, but nobody notices because it's just all about the thrashing guitar. Until Tipper Gore gets involved. Right, yeah. I don't know. There's just something about the incest level of brothers doing it that 
honestly makes me physically ill. That's the problem. Not the threesome. It's that it's two brothers in that threesome. Well, yeah, absolutely. I mean, what people want to do is one thing, but in the same genetic pool, I have a problem. But there is something else that bothers me. Power Tool was only their name in the very beginning. They would quickly change their name. Power Tool was Dweezil Zappa with Matthew Nelson and Gunner Nelson. What? Power Tool is Nelson? I knew there was a reason I didn't like him. That's what I'm oh. saying. Matthew Nelson, Gunner Nelson. This is after the rain Nelson talking about going double dog on a woman. The worst hair band, Nelson. Ugh. Yeah, before they were Nelson, they were Power Tool. They were tools, I'll give them that. But the last line of the movie is Rufus saying they get better. I guess we'll find out next week if the movies do get better. But before then, Jacob Stewart, is this really an excellent adventure? Jacob. I mean, we've kind of talked about this, but I, I said if I hadn't watched this as a kid, it'd be all right. Like, oh, that was a cute movie. I might never go back to it again. But, it, you know, seeing that it is from the director of Critters, like I thought that was going to be a stupid like little monster movie. But then I was like, oh, it's got this weird sci fi angle and these bounty hunters. I wish it was a little bit funnier because then I could have recommended it and I would have been a bit more entertained. Like I, I felt like Critters didn't quite have that comedic angle that that hooked me in and, and, and kept me involved when I felt like it should have had more of that with these goofy space guys coming to catch these little rats or whatever those critters were. So this one works better with the comedy for me. And again, I'm totally biased. I've talked about that, like, because I've grown up on this. It's a film I loved as a kid. Like, look, th this is where you guys could uh, do shame, shame, shame when I didn't recommend Mask of the Phantasm or my future not recommend for Monster Squad whenever you get to that. Because <laughs> people people love what they love. And a lot of times that has to do with nostalgia and being a kid. And I recommend recognize that there is an element of that here but I do think I'd still be entertained as an adult I, I think there's enough comedy here again it, it's kind of the humor that's in my wheelhouse just kind of this oddball off the wall stuff and the, the time travel angle I, I love how they get names wrong like beef oven like again <laughs> there's just enough to Bill and Ted they're just stupid enough and just smart enough to really have that balance and to be entertaining and I do think this film gets better as it goes along. I, I agree with you there, Stuart. Like, when they're in the Old West, I'm like, okay, this kind of a corny set and not some great jokes there. And then in medieval times and all that, I do think it gets stronger as it goes. Maybe it's a lot of, you know, the same joke over and over, but I think they do better takes of those jokes. And the fact that George Carlin here is always fun. So, look, I, I don't think this is a great piece of art. I think this is a fun film, it's something to watch with your kids. Yeah, it's a kid's film, but it's one that will entertain the adults that got to watch it with their kids. It's a, a solid recommend. Stuart. Yeah, believe it or not, I'm agreeing a, a lot with you, and, the, and that's what makes it a tough call. I'm like, there is more here than just stupidity. I end up relating a lot to the history teacher, Mr. Ryan. I'm like, this movie is totally underachieving for the first hour and then something kind of happens. They pull it together in the end. And I find myself kind of charmed by the finale. And I'm not really sure. Do you, would you actually give a failing student a passing grade if they give you a great final paper and they didn't do anything for that first year? That presentation, light show alone, A+. plus. As a college professor, I could say if a student aced the final exam, I would pass them in the class. It would be a D minus, but they would pass. Right. Yeah. I think that's where I'm at. I'm like, is this 
enough to pass what I thought was a pretty mediocre Never, I mean, again, never hated this movie, but I have no connection to these clueless metalheads. I didn't like this scene. These, they're not Marty McFly. They're not John Hughes. They're, they're not as sharp to me as some of the ones that were inspired later, Wayne's World, Beavis. And I just didn't watch a lot of kids' entertainment. You guys talk about Salute Your Short and Say by the Bell. I, I don't think I've ever seen an episode. Like, just, this isn't my wheelhouse. This isn't my bag. I think you really do need to be young enough at heart or in mind to enjoy a Nickelodeon sitcom. Like, I think you got to be able to love one of those to love this movie. I think I'm going to be kind. I really did enjoy the last 30 minutes. It was enough to sustain what was a pretty mediocre movie and say mildest, weakest, barely, certainly not an excellent adventure, but a passing grade for a bill of debt. I think it's exactly what Jacob described for someone that had really experienced it as a youth. It was cute. It was fine. Wow, I did not see that twist ending coming. (laughs) I think everyone heard what they heard here. This is not really my cup of tea, but eh, if you want to experience it, there are worse time-traveling adventures to go to. Jacob, my recommend is going to ping-pong off yours, if I may. You mentioned that if we get to the Monster Squad, you'd give that a not recommend because you didn't grow up with it. Yeah, based off my last viewing like 10 years ago. I Look, people, I might change my mind, but I, I'm going off my gut feeling. Well, I grew up with the Monster Squad. Before I saw Bill and Ted, I saw the Monster Squad in theaters. Yeah, I did too. And I loved it. I then dubbed it onto VHS. I watched it a thousand times. I laughed at Scary German Dude. I laughed at... Wolfman's got nards. The only line I remember. Yes. I I liked the Wolfman when he blew up with dynamite and then pulled himself together again. I laughed at... Wow, you remember this film a lot. I laughed at the not really a virgin joke. And then is she a virgin as a, like, five-year-old? Yeah, I really enjoyed that. I mean, I remember that movie a lot because I saw that movie a lot. Goonies. I saw that movie a hell of a lot. Oh, boy. You did not like that one as an adult. Yeah, that that was a shocker. When we got to recovering that again, it was amazing how irritated you were by the vibe. And I rewatched The Monster Squad looking to have a sense of nostalgia and enjoy a film I enjoyed as a kid. It's worse than Goonies. It was that kind of shattered experience all over again, but a thousand times worse than Goonies. A blazing, pulsing, Dracula-drinking Red Arrow for that. A childhood experience, now that I'm older, does not guarantee I'm going to give a shit movie a pass. I Red Arrowed Goonies, and yes, even though I loved and saw the Monster Squad a thousand times as a kid, if we do it, I guarantee I'm going to take a big dump on its chest. It's awful. But Bill and Ted is really good. You know, it's not just that I saw it as a teenager that you can chalk this up to because I saw those others movies a lot as a teenager. It's that this movie has charm and has a bit of intelligence in bringing in all these historical figures. Yeah, Bill and Ted may not know their history, but the writers did in being able to put the periods together and picking funny figures from throughout history and a motley crew of odd types that would never go together. Abraham Lincoln and Genghis Khan in the same place at the same time and Joan of Arc and none of them even really speaking the same language by and large. It's not nostalgia 
that I give this movie a really strong green arrow is that this movie has something special going for it. It's the casting, it's the lightheartedness of it. It's a really good film. And yes, as the one student said during the presentation, let them eat fast food. This may be a fast food type of movie. It's not a meal to sit down and savor over the course of hours, but it's a damn good meal anyway, and a strong recommend. Yeah, I'll eat this Ziggy Piggy. I'll battle for that last scoop. I wonder, though, I mean, like you mentioned these other movies, but those actually had children in it. Like Bill and Ted, again, maybe part of what you're able to connect with is the fact that we're having adults in the supposed children's roles. I'm not a huge fan of weird science either. What if it were the Corys? Like, could that have worked if this were a Cory movie? I probably wouldn't recommend it. I mean, or would you definitely recommend it? I mean, you would have seen it 20 times. It's hard to say. It's all there's. Bill and Ted, my feelings about it are so embedded in how Alex Winter and Keanu Reeves play these characters. It's just hard to tell. I'm open to it. Like, yeah, go back in time, play the time game, replace these actors. I'm open to it. But I recognize that these two have a chemistry and they just bring something to this role that I don't know if the Corys would have. No, because the Corys played smarmy. Every time you saw Mm -hmm. them, they were too cool for the room and always a little bit smarmy in every role they did together. Back to Lost Boy. I mean, that's true. I don't think they would have carried this. And yes, Stuart, I may have seen it 20 times, but I guarantee you I've seen the Monster Squad more than that, and it's still going to be a shitstorm if we ever review it. It does not matter how much I loved it as a kid. It matters how I view it today. I definitely have been there, and it's painful when you lose one, when you have a beloved childhood film that, like, I can't do this again. This is this is awful. I mean, that, that one hurts. And I, again, there's nothing about this movie that's awful. But I do think that it helps severely if you experience it in childhood or connect in some way with your childhood self. I think that it lives in the sensibilities of a tween. Yeah, that you definitely have to regress, I think, to get the full enjoyment out of this. And I don't have a problem doing that with this film. No, I'm more than happy to regress. I mean, I, I love comic book movies, and while I enjoy a challenging movie, too, I also enjoy popcorn entertainment. I do think this is an excellent adventure. And so I take it that you guys are a part of the standing ovation they get, crying more, more, more. I don't know. I feel I'm good. <laughs> <laughs> a bogus journey I guess I'll go along if I must yeah I don't think I was like yeah I need more Bill and Ted after I saw this I really liked it I don't think I thought in terms of franchises at 12 years old Sure. but yeah a couple years later when I heard oh there's a new one and I saw that trailer I'm like oh yeah I'm down for this film I'm, I'm ready for some more Bill and Ted and I think Bill and Ted took a little while to grow on me because like I said when I left the theater I was like it's okay and I didn't really think about it much. I rewatched it more in the 90s than anything. And when that sequel came out, as I said, no interest till I found out Faith No More was tied to it. So <laughs> I only caught it on video. I don't think it was in theaters all that long, though. Yeah, it, it has this reputation of being a franchise killer, not as good. I'm really interested to see it because, Jacob, I know you call it underrated. I feel like it has the most iconic scene in the two films. We'll talk about it with death and, and when they do a homage to the seventh seal, but yet everyone goes back to the original. Like I feel like everyone loves maybe death in that scene there, but yeah, it's, people are going to watch this one if they have to pick one. But you pick Bogus Journey. That's why you put it in the book. I did. I, it's the one, if you got to set me down and say, which Bill and Ted do you want to watch? Bogus Journey would be the one I'd pick. Okay, well, that's what we're going to do next Tuesday. In the meantime, 
this Friday, if you are one of our patrons of $10 or more at NowPlayingPatron.com, you're getting the first of three consecutive weeks of exclusive bonus shows. This Friday, we're traveling back to the year 2000 with Tom Hanks in Castaway. Yeah, by special request. Uh, I guess, you know, it won't have smart sharks, but more tropical fun uh, after Deep Blue Sea 3. I, I guess I could use that. I need a vacation. Yeah, a movie about the ultimate quarantine. Indeed. I, re- I wish I were on an island. Although, I, it, would, it would suck to open my own coconuts. I, I do have to say, I like, I like the canned uh, goods. They're much easier to open. So, we hope you'll join us this Friday for Castaway. And thank you for listening to this. Jacob Stewart, thank you for joining me. And until next time, gentlemen... We're history. Bill, my friend. Yes, Ted, my friend. This has been a most excellent adventure. Thank you for listening to this episode of Now Playing Podcast. It is time. There is separation. Is we hope you've enjoyed the show. Ted, you and I have witnessed many things, but nothing as bodacious as what just happened. Come back to NowPlayingPodcast.com each week for another new movie review podcast. You must play me again. Also at our site, you can find hundreds of other movie reviews. Welcome to heaven including Star Wars, A Nightmare on Elm Street, Independence Day, The Avengers Films, Back to the Future, Batman, Superman, The Fast and the Furious, and more. Besides, we told ourselves to listen to this guy. See you real soon. Now Playing Podcast is a show without any sponsors or ads. I feel so bad for him. They've been doing this on their own for the longest time. Yeah, I wish there was some way we could help him out, you know? Yeah. We rely on support from listeners like you to keep now playing operating. I guess maybe sell some more blood. Perhaps you should think about selling a couple of the instruments. You can donate to the show and, as our thank you, receive bonus podcasts. Over 150 bonus movie reviews are available to choose from on the Now Playing Podbean page, including Alien, Night of the Living Dead, Jurassic Park, Ghostbusters, Indiana Jones, Lord of the Rings, Psycho, Troll, and more. Find a full list of available bonus shows at nowplayingpodcast.com forward slash donate. We came to help you guys in your most unfortunate situation. You can also join the Now Playing Patron campaign through our Podbean site. Patrons of $10 or more get a new exclusive movie review every month. Extra credit, dude. Plus, even more perks, including one where you can pick a movie for our host to review. Find the details on our website. And I've been wanting to meet you my whole life. It must be very disappointing. Not at all. You can help us out by leaving us a five-star review on Stitcher, Podbean, iTunes, or your other podcast store of choice. Before you say anything, my distinguished colleague Ted and I wish to express to you our thanks. You can follow Now Playing on Facebook and Twitter, where we post announcements of new episodes and where the hosts post movie mini-reviews. Links to our social media pages are available on our homepage. You will come with me 
Now Playing Podcast is produced by Arnie Carvalho. You are just a noble creator. Associate produced by Jason Latham. But once again, I want to thank you for your very hard work. Now Playing is edited by Arnie. And very important, do not do your homework without wearing headphones. Now Playing Credits, read by Brock. I love show business. The opinions expressed on Now Playing are those of the individual hosts and may not reflect the opinion of Venganza Media Incorporated. What if we were lying? Why would we lie to ourselves? Venganza Media Incorporated is not affiliated with the motion pictures reviewed or otherwise referred to herein. And what have you learned? We've, uh, we've learned that the world has a great history. All movie clips and music included in this podcast are the intellectual property of the respective copyright holders. They are included here for the purpose of review and no infringement is intended. I worked within the system until I could stand it no longer. Now Playing Podcast is an exclusive trademark of Venganza Media Incorporated. Now Playing is a Venganza Media production, copyright 2020, and no part of this show may be reproduced, repurposed, or redistributed without the written permission of Venganza Media Incorporated. All rights reserved. How'd you like our song? Party on, dudes! Catch you later, Bill And we are now playing. <laughs> yeah, and we are three. Now playing. Now playing. <laughs> I guess you can edit it. Try it one more time. You want to do a countdown? <laughs> now now playing. Play. <laughs> I'll Lucas it. Fix it in post. I feel like we tried to do that one other time that went about that well. <laughs> It reminds me of a prank that Shaggy and Scooby would do to save the day. Shaggy and Scooby never save the day. The cowards. <laughs> <laughs>